Ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of the 21st century, the century that birthed James Bond. What is his life like heading into a new millennium? Indeed, will he even survive into a new millennium? Will any of us? Because the greatest existential threat to humanity is this year. It is the Venga Boys with We Like to Party, the Venga Bus is coming. But also, it is the Millennium Bug, a terrifying spectre of doom that hangs over everybody. And obviously, sitting here in the ashes of 2020 was really something we'd probably much rather have again than everything else we're doing right now. It is time to discuss Pierce Brosnan's third James Bond film here on Raven Bond. I'm talking, of course, about The World Is Not Enough. I am Natalie Mohensky. That was a confused intro, but it's okay because with me to save the day is a man who very much likes to put on a white tuxedo, play a game of high card draw, then wind up taking a bath in a tub of his own caviar. It's Stuart Light. <laughs> hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. Yes, you. That, that's my ideal Saturday night. <laughs> you and Robbie Coltrane. Me and Robbie Coltrane in a giant hot tub full of uh, caviar. Full of beluga. Mm-hmm. If I had to have a pet whale, I feel like it would have to be a beluga. Have you seen those whales? They're very cute. They are so cute. They're like the kitten of the whale world. They kind of follow you around and chase you. But and they don't, that's not where the caviar comes from, though, right? Like, there's like a fish that that comes from. I assume so. But there's a whale called a beluga. There's also a beluga whale, yes. I, I don't really know how caviar works. Well, it's, it's fish eggs. That's all it is. It's fish eggs. Okay. That's really gross. But sure. <laughs> uh, I'm all over the place tonight. I was trying to make a Millennium Bug joke and a Venga Boys joke. <laughs> well, we're here. It's 19. It's the far off uh, oh. future year of 1999. 1999 is considered one of those great hallmark years of cinema now, isn't it? Like there's, there's, yeah, the the Matrix came out. That's Matrix and Fight Club and American Beauty. Although you know that's uh, under a cloud now, but there's, it's one of those years where a whole bunch of really interesting films came out, and you can listen to all manner of podcasts where they talk about the achievements of 1999 in cinema, and so. You know, this is a lot of competition for James Bond to come up against. And, you know, let's be fair, The World Is Not Enough is not quite The Matrix. It's not quite Fight Club. (laughs) It's it's not quite a lot of those things. But I still think it's a a pretty decent middle-of-the-road Bond film, just to, to kind of, I guess, put the spoilers on the table. There's a lot I like about this film, but I guess overall, having rewatched it now, it's a little confused, I think. It's yeah, made well, a little unsteady. Definitely uh, for me, it is a fascinating failure of a movie. Ah, okay. Um, going going way out, Stu. Fascinating failure. I, I think it, it is. I think it fails in everything it sets out to do, but it's it's kind of admirable that it's set out in the first place. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of very interesting failures in this movie. But it is ultimately still a failure of a movie. Okay. Well, we'll get into it. I just I guess I first want to say 1999, wouldn't it be nice to to go back there? It sure would. Have a moment and remember the millennium bug. (laughs) A 
and just just kind of sit with that and think remember how we were all really concerned <laughs> i'm pretty sure my dad got in some extra tins of beans or something just in case yeah oh, absolutely lots of lots of people did um, like i don't think it was a panic response i think it was just like you know when we have sometimes floods in brisbane or something like that and people will be like maybe just pop to the shops and grab a few buy extra all of the toilet paper yeah well Hello, 2020. Yes. Toilet paper wasn't really a worry back when we had bad floods here, which is almost 10 years ago. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, when you think about it? Like, the, the, people were not buying toilet paper. People were buying fresh water because there was a worry that the water very might be uh, very sensible. And I guess some food and stuff because they might be cut off. But I guess everyone was very happy to just let things in the toilet go back to basics. Like, sure. Rag on a stick. Rag on a stick. Or what do they use in Roman times? I think they use pine cones. Uh, if you weren't quite posh enough for, for wool or something like that, you got a pine cone. Hey, that's how they conquered uh, most of Europe, the Romans. It was just very scratchy uh, downstairs. Um, <laughs> they took out their anger on everyone else. Veni, vidi, rectum. No, that doesn't make sense. I was trying to... <laughs> Well, I was going to say, um, the fact that you mentioned before that, like, 1999 was a banning year for films, and I, I didn't realise just how much it was, because I've just gone and had a look. Okay. Um, unfortunately, number one at the box office that year was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Uh, so okay, it went so on off to a great start. Number two, The Sixth Sense. Number three, Toy Story 2. Number four, The Matrix. Number five, Disney's Tarzan. Number six, The Mummy. Oh, uh, the it's Mummy with Brendan Fraser. Oh, gosh, that was a fun... Oh. That, that's like a Bond movie with... Oh, yeah, yeah. With, I mean, it's an Indiana Jones movie, but, but it, yes, an Indiana true. Jones movie is a Bond movie. It's crazy. Yes, yes. Uh, the Mummy, Notting Hill, number seven. Oh, uh, yes. Number eight, The World Is Not Enough. So this came, this was the eighth wow. highest grossing movie it, of 1999. It was a massive hit. It was like $360 million at the box yeah. office, something I was just reading. Like, that's huge. Even though it wasn't particularly well-received in a lot of quarters, it still did super good numbers. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, number nine is American Beauty. And number 10 is Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Oh, my goodness. Yes, of so, course. I think I'm glad that an actual Bond film did better at the box office than a parody. Only just. Only <laughs> just. Number eight. But it Austin still Powers counts. was number 10. It still counts. Kevin Spacey <laughs> is in between them, and uh, it's it. always an awkward place for Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> is it okay to make Kevin Spacey jokes? I mean, I'm, I think I, so. I'm I think you could take it. <laughs> he was just so popular back then, wasn't he? And uh, that, that movie was a massive, massive hit, and I think it is had it has rightly had a critical re-examination over the years. Even even before all the personal revelations about Kevin Spacey came out, people are sort of like, "Hey, this movie is kind of bad." <laughs> I yeah, it was never one that really. I did go and see it at the cinema, surprising to many people, I'm sure, because it was so fated. But yeah. I remember being kind of creeped out by it like yeah it's, it's, it's about an old man fantasizing about his daughter's best friend who's a chili like well it's a, it's a guy having a very significant midlife crisis is what sure, it is about sure. which you know had quite a lot of middle-aged men saying yeah yeah I, i'm right there with you buddy yeah it's a very strange movie but it, that's not the movie we're here to talk about today it is not the movie we're here to talk about uh should we dive into our minute challenge absolutely is it my turn or your turn i think it is your turn okay i, I can i can go okay, this you, uh, this time you go anyway okay so first on my list is that's not how bullets in brains work <laughs> um okay. not even slightly natalie not even slightly. So, yes. i watched this with my wife who is a medical professional and <laughs> she she was sitting there with her mouth open <laughs> as they explained that the bullet 
pressing on his, uh, I think, medulla oblongata, if I can drop a medical term, because this movie certainly didn't. Decide, and uh, as it pressed on that central section, uh, he would grow stronger, but it would eventually kill him. She's like, "That's yeah. not how it would. That's not how it works. No. <laughs> that's I not how that works." Well, so we're talking about Renard, who's Robert Carlyle, who yes. is uh, ostensibly the villain of this film, and we'll talk to that later, I'm sure. But his superpower, I guess, or his villainous trait, he you feels know, no pain. They, they often have something. Except is that he... the pain in his heart. <laughs> at not being able to to feel. Because mm. as we know, Stu, there's no point in living if you can't feel alive. Indeed. Philosophy is a big theme of this movie. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so this is this is Robert Carlyle and his, his superpower is that he was shot in the skull by another MI6 agent. It didn't kill him, but it, it has given him superpowers. Yeah. <laughs> the opposite of what you would want to happen. Yes. It's like the uh, the brass eye sketch. This is the last thing we. This is the worst thing we wa- we wanted to happen. Which sketch was that? Sorry, I, I mangled that quote. No, that's okay. I love brass eye. It, it was uh, um, it was from the the Pettigeddon, uh sketch. Oh my god, that that episode is. I remember. Might, might be best not to go down that road. Never mind. No, true, true. Just yeah, look up brass eye. It'll probably be one of the first ones. That was probably aired around this time too, wasn't it? Late nineties yeah, or actually, early. Yeah, it would, it would have been around this time. Maybe that's why I'm thinking of it. Yeah, and the Brass Eye was kind of a parody current affairs show. And it's still amazing. Like, it's, it's still very cutting. So, so good. I mean, it's Chris Morris who went on to do Four Lions and what else? Many, many other things. <laughs> I wanted to say something and then I was like, oh, no, I don't want to get him confused with Armando Iannucci who did, like, The Thick of It. And no, the, although although they do, they're, they're sort of in the same sort of circles. They they work in, in very yeah. similar satirical circles. But, yeah, the Chris Morris one, they just they get a whole bunch of celebrities and get them to kind of rally on to this good cause and they just totally fool them all. Yeah, it's excellent and very very funny but also very like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) yes brass eye highly recommended so renard is the villain and he has superpowers yes they're a little bit far-fetched or indeed completely far-fetched but i still quite like the idea of that the idea of someone who can't feel pain is is an interesting exactly And, and that's the first sort of example in this movie of something that's actually like an incredibly fascinating idea because it's it's something that gives him like a physical presence in the movie like he's he's he has he basically has super strength and he can't feel pain yes uh and that makes him a formidable physical threat but the movie like goes out of its way to humanize him or it tries to anyway it tries to humanize him by making him all conflicted and first of all conflicted over like the fact that he can't feel anything anymore and that he will die one day and he has this fatalism about him but also that he has become disillusioned like it's given him a, a new perspective that he he previously was like this international terrorist and he's kind of had this weird awakening since he had this this incident happen to him mm. You know, and it's, it's actually really interesting as a concept, but on the screen, it just sort of falls over. Like there's just <laughs> nothing to it. So I, again, it's one of those things where the it's something that the movie is trying and good on it for trying, uh, yes. but it just doesn't work. For me anyway, it might work for other people, but it's, it's certainly, I was just sitting there going, this, this is not working. <laughs> and then I guess we'll get to this, but it does further complicate, I guess, the relate the already complicated relationship between he and Sophie Masso's character of yes. Electra King. That brings me to my second point on my list, which is a very obvious double cross. Do you think so? I think it was extremely obvious. I think it's very interesting that the film knew that it was extremely obvious and tried to distract us 
and like say, oh no, it's not, that, that's not what you think is going on. And then it totally is what's going on. So to summarize for people who may not have seen it, spoilers, Electra King is set up initially as an ex-kidnapping uh, victim. Her father's been murdered. He's a billionaire who is trying to build a pipeline. She's the devoted daughter trying to see his project to fruition. And MI6 start to think that she's under threat And it turns out she's been playing everyone from the start and, in fact, she is the ultimate villain of the piece. I cannot remember if I was surprised by the reveal of her as as the main villain. But there is a point, as you say, about halfway through the film where Bond thinks that he starts to suspect her and questions the fact that Renard says, you know, there's no point in living if you can't feel alive, which is what Electra says. And he starts to suspect that she's had uh, been the victim of Stockholm Syndrome. But she's able to kind of go, no, you, you disgust me. How could you believe Leave this about me. You, you've lied to me. She, and so she kind of turns his good feelings towards her because as typical Bond style, he meets her and falls in love with her within, I don't know, half a day. <laughs> <laughs> and then has sex with her. But, but you know, a, a rare case of uh, James Bond's magical dick having no effect. Well, yes, exactly. If anything, she was able to, you know, put up some sort of vaginal force field. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is incidentally the name of my new band. Um, <laughs> I'm just getting a mental image of the costumes for the stage show. Uh, no. <laughs> so what is interesting is that it's not Stockholm Syndrome, that she ultimately is the villain. She's the one who Stockholm Syndromed Renard and made him work for her. And I still think that that is a really interesting way to go to to make the female it's not that she was just the she was the oh no I got sucked into this international terrorists kind of world because he kidnapped me it's no she realized that she has what do they call it uh like pussy power or something what there's a there's a I think there's a fairly unfortunate term that involves the c word and the word struck Um, struck. (laughs) yeah I was just thinking exactly that cat whipped or something Yes, cat glamoured. No, I'm I'm, ma- I'm making things more difficult. But yes, the the conceit is that it's she who reeled him into her ultimate plan, and he is her offside and not the other way around. And I think that that is singular in the Bond films, particularly for a mm. female villain. We have had female villains before, but not to the extent of Electra King. And I think I think that's to this film's credit. Yes, except that- like. For me, it definitely, again, it's one of the things where it's just a swing and a miss. Like, it's it's a really oh, interesting oh. idea, and it just falls flat. Like, it just, nothing about it on screen is interesting because they add the complication of, oh, is she a villain or is she secretly, like, Stockholm syndromed? And at what point do you have too many twists? You know, like, like that they not only do they have the twist, they take you down the garden path and make you think that she's the, the villain. Then they say, no, she's not the villain. And then they reveal, haha, she was the villain all along. And then they add the extra twist of... She wasn't Stockholm Syndrome. She was she was the villain all along and she was the one who convinced Reynard to do everything. And it's like, it's it's too much. It's too much. Lose one of those twists. Yeah, I will say that one of the things that, you know, on the rewatch of Tomorrow Never Dies last week uh, that really enamoured me was how you know that Jonathan Price is the villain from the start. Yes. He's the villain from the start. And, and there's, there's a certain charm in that simplicity. 
So it's a bit of a poison chalice when you do try to do something a little bit more interesting, a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more twisty-turny. And then is it that the fact that they attempted it that didn't work? Is it the fact that it didn't quite come off? Was it the writing? Was it the acting? I think it was the execution Um, because the the idea of it is fine. Like, again, it's a really intriguing idea, but the way they did it was, was just the worst possible way they could have done it. And it's not that they can't do twists because in Goldeneye, the, the villain has a massive twist, you know, like, like there's the sudden twist of, oh, it's it's Alec Trevelyan. But here it's like, it's exactly who he thought it was. <laughs> but also there's I an extra remember. little ripple to it. You know, I like, wish uh, I could remember whether I was convinced by her or not. I mean, I think the Bond formula tends to have the bad Bond girl and the good Bond girl. Yes. And I think probably based on the fact that she's French and mysterious that Sophie Marceau <laughs> falls into the, the bad foreign, isn't she? Bond girl. Well, she's just so entrancing. Exactly. Like Sophie Marceau is entrancing. And she'd done, I think she'd been in Braveheart at that point or, or just a bit earlier. So she was probably had a bit of profile for that. But she was a famous French actress. I think she'd been in that Queen Margot film. I think that was her, which was, a, I think, an Oscar best language film winner. Look at me trying to be best pick pod. (laughs) (laughs) You needed to have someone with a bit of that mystery that tends to play more favourably when they're... Because I don't think she's supposed to be French. I think she's supposed to be sort of a Russian. Yeah, that, that church is meant to be, like, well, it's, her, it's in the, home, her in home the, village or something? Like Yeah, she's in the, the Jans, the Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan. That, her people? Oh, her I, I, yeah. So the one thing, I didn't actually have this on my list, but at one point they go to Kazakhstan. Very nice. Um, <laughs> yes, well, they, that's all I'll say they, about that. Her father's British. Her mother was, I guess, uh, Eastern European, Azerbaijani, Kazakhstani, you know, that region, Caspian Sea kind of region, but ethnic Slavic, I guess that's what they are. I could be insulting so many people, but that part of the world. And so her whole motivation is to get sort of justice for her mother's side of the family because they're the people who own the oil. Her father just exploited that. I guess maybe a key reason why you might consider her the villain is because her name is Electra in Greek uh, plays. Electra is the daughter of a king and she kills him in a slightly pseudo-sexual way. Basically, it's the opposite of an Oedipus complex is an Electra complex when you've got a woman obsessed with with daddy issues, as we might call Uh, it. It's the same reason that the Marvel Comics character is called Electra. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's the uh, famous uh, Jennifer Garner role. Uh, Well, yes, yes, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, and actually... That that brings me to another point on my list, which is that there are there are still no good films with an Electra in them. Oh, that's so <laughs> sad. It's a great name, Electra. And yet it's true. It's a great name. Yeah, it's an amazing yeah. name. But unfortunately, yeah, if you can think of a good film that has a character called Electra in it, uh, call in. <laughs> Uh, I cannot. I've, I've racked my brain. I can think of three movies off the top of my head with an Electra in them, and they are all stinkers. So, well, this one, the the Daredevil one. And, and in the, the standalone Electra film. And in the film, standalone, that's right. atrocious, Natalie. I, just I, the worst fucking thing. Oh, really? Oh, it was so bad. So I, bad. I didn't see that one. Yeah. I saw the Daredevil one. Yes. Uh, because that was sort of pre the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think. And it was all very exciting because it was Ben Affleck as Daredevil. Yeah. And, and like the fact that they were doing a Daredevil movie was like really, it's like, wow, they're really starting to mine the IP. Like they're getting down to some of these crazy characters. You know, little did we know. But like, there's a lot to like about that movie, but it's not 
great. It's kind of messy. Apparently, there's a director's cut that's a lot better. Okay. Because um, the, the studio got involved late in the game and sort of forced us several recuts yes. uh, onto it. So apparently, the, the director's cut is a lot better, but I've never actually gone and watched it. Well, exactly. How much time do you want to give to <laughs> director's cut of exactly. the, the Ben Affleck uh, superhero anything, really? But apparently, it's the movie where they met. Oh, that's right, because they were married then for a long they time. They were married for a that's long right. time, and they yeah. they only recently separated, which is, yeah. sucks, but oh well. That's Batfleck for you. Yeah, yeah He exactly. has to be alone. Um, it's all method. It is. So I guess I, just to, to sort of finish off on Electra, I probably am not quite as harsh as, as you with this one in terms of that element. I did have her on my list. I, I had her as a, as a bait and switch. Yes, in hindsight, I can see it's it's definitely uh, more obvious than I, I would like to think that it was. <laughs> but I still want to give them points for trying. Well, anyway, Maybe it's, that's it's the biggest clever. insult of all. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. But, but it's almost clever because... That they give you enough information to make you start suspecting her, and then they turn it on its head, and suddenly they make you question everything. So you're right there with Bond. You're with Bond. You're thinking of this as Bond's thinking about it, and you get confused and and think you might be you know overthinking it at the same time Bond does. So it's actually an interesting structure, and it's it's reasonably well done in that regard. But I just feel like it's too much. Like like you you either you know you've got to get rid of one of the twists, otherwise it's just a hat, hats on hats on hats. You can't keep like twisting your way, otherwise everything just gets tied up in knots. It's crazy. I have a question for you, just as an aside. What is it about James Bond? kind of falling in love with with women like Electra, like really quickly. Well, he likes a femme fatale. Yes, yes. I know it's a Bond movie and, of course, he's got to – there's – there's like generally a sexual attraction and, and sexiness. But with this one, he really seems to, you know, totally fall for her. And what I found really strange about this, indeed, I <laughs> I had to stop my recording and go back a bit to see that I didn't miss anything. Mm-hmm. They go to the casino, Valentin Zakovsky's casino in Baku, and she plays a high draw game, as I alluded to at the start, where <laughs> she pulls a queen of hearts, he then pulls an ace of clubs, and so he wins a million dollars. And it's just like that. They don't even try to play a few rounds of blackjack to kind of eke it out. It's an in-out drop. And, of course, we realise later that that was a payment that she was making to him. Mm. But then she says to Bond, well, shall we? And he says, this is a game I can't afford to play. And she's like, I know. And then they walk out together. And she looks stunning, by the way. The whole movie through, she looks incredible. What The outfits that they put her in are so amazing. And she's in this stunning red dress. And then they walk out and he says, oh, what about Davidoff, her offsider? And she says, I've given him the night off. And then there's a scene with somebody else. And then it cuts to them in bed, to Bond and, and yeah. Electra in bed. Yeah, it feels very perfunctory. And, well, it, it's there's 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 not the the draw of her like he, she's been sort of slowly seducing him i guess and and particularly after the um skiing accident which i'll get to that because i have a, a a point to make about that right. um but <laughs> the fact that there's no kind of initial kiss or like a passion it's just oh they're in bed sort of making out and you know, there's ice, they're doing the whole ice thing and it's all very sensual because obviously Renard is a bit of a wet fish, uh, clearly. Well, well and, and and not only that, like there's, there's a lot of emphasis on the fact, on like tactile, like feeling, like like, like the, the, the ice is very much a tactile thing. Yes. She's completely absent from Renard. He can't feel things. Yes, yeah, that's right. And so because they have him sort of fall in love with her, the resulting sort of end relationship with Denise Richards feels kind of tacked on because, like, he's lit. What? Yeah, no, no. Uh, like, like I'm, I'm, I'm 
enthusiastically agreeing with you. Like, <laughs> just. Because, uh. because it's the opposite to Goldeneye, where you can see he's never. He looks at Famke Jansen, you know, on on, uh, on a top as a as a purely. Um, like, like a yeah, threat rather than a conquest. Like, like he's not sexually attracted to her at that's all. That's right. He sees her as this almost a novelty. And then he sort of falls in love with Natalia. And then with Tomorrow Never Dies, he kind of has that historic relationship with Paris. So you can kind of justify the, I guess, the love a bit more because it's this sort of old flame briefly rekindled before being snuffed out for good. And I think we mentioned this last week, or certainly from your perspective, the the romance with Michelle Yeoh is not quite as convincing. And I think it's even less convincing this time around with Denise <laughs> Richards. <laughs> they, they have no chemistry at all. <laughs> so it, is, it is like two marble statues pressing up against each other. It is ridiculous. <laughs> I do feel like Denise Richards – no, let, let's get to that a bit later, but I just just to focus on this fact that he has literally just, you know, had to kill Electra King because she's about to send the, the submarine down. He says, call, call Renard off and this can end. But she's like, oh, no, you wouldn't kill me. You'd miss me. And then he shoots her. He shoots her cold blood dead to yep. stop her. But he is torn up by that and he kind of emcees him, like, touching her hair and <laughs> – can I just say, though, because M has no context for this whatsoever. She doesn't know at this point that they've had a relationship. So Bond has just shot the daughter of her old friend <laughs> dead. And now he's, like, gently caressing her hair. But and she, she has a look on her face she that knows could be interpreted as, like, pity or shock. But it could also be interpreted as, what the hell are you doing, 007? <laughs> Well, she she does know that Electra's the villain at this point because... Yes, no, absolutely. But it's like, you know, he, he, she ha- the look on Judy Dench's face could either be, oh, you know, I, I can't believe what's just happened, but it could also be, why are you touching her hair? <laughs> what's going on? Bond, did you sleep with her? I specifically asked you not to sleep with her. <laughs> I feel like that's a red rag to a ball, like telling Bond, like, <laughs> you assign Bond knowing he's going to sleep with her. Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> also, Bond is really helpless around women. The poor guy just <laughs> aims to please. So, <laughs> so I, I just think that the emphasis on that first relationship, particularly because he kind of falls in love with her, uh, you know, again, as we say, over the course of about half a day, then makes the final relationship less convincing and and it, it's okay to be not as convincing because he's celebrating he's like hey got out of the submarine and saved the world again uh let's totally do it but yeah and we'll get to the, the final not, well, the movie could have been very interesting in playing that as him being very nihilistic and just saying yep well at the end of these movies i tend to bang a hot chick so here <laughs> we go and play it up as like bond seeking solace in empty sexual conquest after having given himself over emotionally to someone who ultimately betrayed him. The movie doesn't do that, though. <laughs> the movie's like, no, 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 at the end, James Bond sleeps with a pretty girl, so that's yeah. what's going to happen. It, it, it has the opportunity to do something very interesting, and it does not do it. It chooses mm-hmm. to do an extremely safe and cliched thing. And a very, very infamous line, which... Oh, yes, Jesus to. Christ. <laughs> I actually didn't write that down. I, I completely forgot about that. But um, yeah, like, like, do you want to talk about that line? <laughs> Let's leave that to, to talking about Denise Richards, which okay, I do yes, want to do yes, a bit absolutely. more detail. Okay. Just continue with your list. Well, I was going to say, well, j- just to um, the final point about Sophie Marceau. Um, did you like the way that Bond dispatched her? Uh, 
Because I'm in two minds about it. Okay. Uh, like, I, on the one hand, I kind of, I, I want Bond to be ruthless. Like, I want mm. him to be like, yes, we had a relationship, but you're threatening to blow up a nuclear bomb. So it doesn't matter that you're a woman. It doesn't matter that I've slept with you. I'm going to shoot you dead. Like, I'm a secret agent. This is what I do. But on the other hand, I just feel like that the way that moment is played and also the, the aftermath, as I said, with, with like, M there and the weirdness it's just a weird moment and again it's it's a a thing where the the movie tries to do something very interesting and just kind of falls over (laughs) yeah i can just can't stick landing i can definitely see the aftermath stuff but i think that given that she had tried to kill him so slowly Mm. uh with the garrote i think that him dispatching her quickly efficiently is much more his style. Like, I don't think oh, yeah, he would... Yeah. I think he gave her a lot of chances. More sure, chances yeah. than he did to other people in the film. <laughs> and and, and honestly, like, like for, for Bond and for action movies in general, like, you know, oh, you couldn't kill me, you'd miss me. And then he shoots her and he says, I never miss. Like, that's yes. that's a great line. Yeah. It's just in service of a weird plot. <laughs> Uh, uh, so the, the next item on my list is uh, Farewell Q. Yeah. Desmond Llewellyn, his final film. And now my, my understanding is that they did not assume that this was going to be his last film. Is that correct? No, 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 absolutely. He died of a, in a car accident yeah. not long after it premiered. Yeah. Which is so, just insane that, that they had that scene in the film where he's like, you know, always have an escape plan. Yes. Yes, and then slowly, it, like, lowers out of frame. And, like, like you, you could, you'd be hard-pressed to think of, like, a better farewell for Q. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I, he does say, I've, I've tried to teach you two things, 007. One, never let them see you bleed. And Which doesn't like, make any – when has he ever said that? Yeah, well, he's never said that. Uh, it would be more like, more like things like, take care of my equipment and be yeah, responsible. Don't push buttons. Yeah. <laughs> or just, you know, I, I, I've encouraged you to be creative with things I've made for you or something like that, you know, and I've been, I've been uh, crank, cranky at you, but ultimately proud of you or something like that. You know what I mean? But yeah, it was just, I, I couldn't find much detail on why that scene got written the way it did. Desmond Llewellyn was well into his 80s i guess they were just sort of hedging their bets like they thought you know yeah and maybe be around for the next one yeah he was 85 that's crazy yeah and uh, it, it it was again it it's like the perfect send-off had you known that maybe he had a illness and he had a you know limited time left yeah and it's just such a a really sweet coincidence that, that that's the scene that they wrote for him and that it works as his farewell this is farewell Um, yeah but i think the idea was to have him back you know i don't think that they would have you know die another day was what 2002 he quite easily could have done another stint at 87 88 (laughs) (laughs) well maybe i mean maybe they suspected that even if he hadn't have died immediately he might not have been able to or you know might not have wanted to yeah Um, yeah that must have been part of the discussion um and to to have him you know, have an offside or or to have a succession plan. Well, yes, exactly, because, of course, the other side of this is that we, we get introduced to R, yes. uh, which is a joke in this movie and then not a joke in the next movie. Yes. That his code name is R, and it is, of course, John Cleese, uh, yes. one of my favourite, all-time favourite comedic actors not really selling me on <laughs> on uh, this particular one. He's he's definitely hitting the old classics in this in this particular movie. Yeah, he's sort of taking on. I guess because Desmond Llewellyn has a gruff 
rapport with Bond. He's still, you know, pipe down 007. But you can tell that they're very, very, you know, they're on very good terms, a very friendly relationship, very affectionate. R is sort of bringing back some of the, you know, jowl shaking. Uh, looking down his nose at 007, this brutish field agent that he's forced uh, to deal with. Yes, I've heard about your wit or half of it, you know. There's, it's, uh, <laughs> but yes, it's supposed to add, I guess, be the, because the cue scenes are often the comic relief and this one is so comedic. You've literally got a piper. A bagpiper shoots <laughs> bagpipe guns, you know. <laughs> like, they really go to town on the whole, we're in a secret base in Scotland. Listen, listen, I, I am I am 100% in on all that I, stuff. I knew you would be. You know I am. I knew you would be. I'm, I'm an, I, that is my kryptonite. I'm absolute <laughs> sucker for that stuff. The bagpipe guns, love it. Amazing. <laughs> Because it's the um, it's the same uh, it's Elan Doonan which I've been to but it's the um, McLeod residence from Highlander. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of used so much in um, years ago when uh, Greg from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast and I went to Scotland for the first time together and uh, we were in a bus on this um it's weed uh, bus uh, uh, kind of little trip around Scotland and the guides put on music uh, and they put on Who Wants to Live Forever by Queen, which, of course, Queen did all yes, the soundtracking. Exactly. Uh, to and so they put it on at the exact time. They know exactly when to start the music so that as they turn this corner and you see Elan Doonan in all of its glory for the first awesome. time, awesome. they have the music going, Who Wants to Live Forever? And then you just see this castle and the whole bus is like, Wah! <laughs> except for me because i wasn't quite down with the highlander i think at that point but yeah certainly greg was very excited sure, yes. <laughs> it was a great trick um, absolutely it's a beautiful place and it's been in so many movies as various castles it's so distinctive but uh yes i love the fact that it's a, another secret mi6 <laughs> Well, and again, that sort of stuff I love. I love that stuff. I love the and, and of course, like MI6 has a base in Scotland. Of course they do. Yes. Um, you know, and the, like all the all the weird little gadgets they're, they're working on up there. And, and yeah, it's great. Like all of that stuff, top notch. Love yeah. it. I think it's really interesting in these films that I get a real sense of, in, in the Pierce Brosnan Bonds, of the MI6 team. It's yeah. very, in a way that I hadn't really noticed before, but I do notice that it really does carry forward into the Daniel Craigs, where there's like a team. There's like M007, Money Penny, Q, well, a, couple of, has... a couple of other people that we know, like we see a couple of, like over and over again. Yeah, Bill Tanner and Robinson. Yeah, they're there's like there's like an MI6 team that all have their roles <laughs> to the point where when um they're discussing how they're going to go forward because Robert King's been exterminated on and we'll get to that his murder at the start of the film and they're up in Scotland for his funeral and talking about how they're going to proceed and M's like this will not stand we can't have someone killing people in the middle of our building and so they give everyone their assignments and there's yes. Bond sitting in the middle and he doesn't get a, a manila folder. Get a folder. <laughs> but then there's all these people around him who you're like, I've got no idea who that is. Who's that? Is that a double O? Is that <laughs> yeah. another double O? And you never see them on their part of the mission. No, that's right. You yeah, yeah. Just, what were they doing? <laughs> they were doing some random checks of other potential <laughs> terrorist groups. One's I love the idea that there's like seven other like Bond films happening simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> but it's literally just them sitting in a, a cocktail hour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
waiting you're, for a potential lead to to follow through. Yeah, you're 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 the double O who got like the the dud lead. So you just yeah. sit in the sit in the bar at a hotel in Istanbul or something. And it's like, oh bloody hell, <sighs> Bond has got it again. <laughs> I never get to ski down mountains being followed by gun-toting parahawks. <laughs> Every time it's Murphy's law, it's Bond's law. If there's a crazy scheme, he's going to be the one who investigates. <laughs> But yes, how's your list going? I'm down to one last uh, one last thing on my list, which is just that I forgot a lot of this movie. <laughs> um, this is an extremely forgettable movie. Like, like I, I think of the Brosnans as very, or I used to anyway, as very interchangeable. And I think it's because of this movie. This movie is very, very middle of the road, forgettable action. Like mostly stuff the franchise has done before. Like the Parahawk stuff, I guess, is is a little bit interesting. And the um the Q boat chase. Oh yeah. At the start is interesting, but it's just very very samey, very forgettable. There's a pretty good fight between Bond and uh, Renard at the in the submarine at the end. I guess there's a lot of that. It's pretty tense. It's being damned with fate praise here, ladies and yeah. gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> like it really is like it just sort of you know i was like wow like because again like like i think you you've just watched this movie you watched it like an hour ago uh, uh, a, a few hours ago Stu. a few hours ago I've yeah had a, i've had a bit more time to percolate right yes but but uh, you know i sort of i i watched it a couple of days ago and i was struggling during our one minute challenge i'm like wait what happened in this movie like <laughs> I, I had to really think. So that's the end. Like, I just kind of forgot a lot of this movie, which is not a great sign. <laughs> well, I will go with my list and see if that sparks yes. anything more for let's, discussion. Let's spark my memory. The main thing that I, I wrote down first, and, and this probably ties into what you just said, but I think the plot is quite complicated and there's a lot of stepping on stepping stones, like a lily pad, like jumping you know, it's not running on the backs of crocodiles. Yes, yes, that's the suitably Bond uh, allegory. But it's if you aren't paying attention, and even if you are, you can kind of sit there going, "Hang on, so what? So what?" You know, I think structurally, it's it's got some yeah. issues, and it's also got issues with the conceit of Electra being the villain means mm. that she has been masterminding everything that's happened so mm. far. Yeah. But there are some things that happen that you're like, how could you possibly control for all yes. variables? Yeah, exactly. And, it's, and, it's the problem with this and, story structure. And particularly with, say, the Parahawks, right? Yeah. So she knows that uh, M is sending someone. She obviously has worked out cleverly enough that it's going to probably be Bond. She's probably been able to get details on him that he's a, you know, womanizer and she can probably use her magic vagina to get one up on him. <laughs> uh, and, and so she's sort of plotting these things. But then, for example, he turns up, she says, thanks, but no thanks. I've got to go check the supply lines or the survey lines or something like that, mm. which can only be done by skiing to them of course, and looking at them. There's no actual checking. You know, it's yeah. just And it has a, to be done by me, the head of this multi-million dollar company and it, not an employee of mine. That's right. With specific survey equipment yeah. or like she has to just go visually check them. She can't have a team go up and take a few photos. And sure. they have the internet by this point. Hashtag girl boss. Very, very early mobile phones they could have sent her a text actually no i don't think texting was universal until texting 2000 was not universal in 1999 it was not it was 2000 that it happened god 20 years of texting there you go that's another milestone a lot of sore two- thumbs a lot of sore thumbs a lot of uh new language <laughs> uh, 
lol. So, so, so they go to to look at the the supply lines, and it's just her and Bond. The helicopter doesn't even seem to follow them; it just vanishes. They have to like jump out of the helicopter because yeah. it can't land, but it can. Yes. The, the winds are high enough that the helicopter can't land, but it can hold steady so that they can just jump out of the they bloody just thing. Jump out and go down, and and again, remember how I talked about it? I think in for your eyes only, how Bond is wearing just a really outrageous striped blue beanie. Mm-hmm. Yes. I said, and just they have to stop doing that because you can't have Bond in a beanie. He's not wearing a beanie. Did you notice? Yes, I noticed. Yeah, they're yeah. Like up in the Caucasus Mountains or something. Yeah, they're, they're and, not putting they're not putting Pierce Brosnan in a beanie. And they're not wearing, you know, she's wearing this very slim line skiing outfit and he's wearing his you know sexy new jacket and he's all in black as, as i said they have to move to having bond all in black and it's like there's no way that would be enough warmth for them but anyway that aside they have to be sexy movie stars i get it so the parahawks arrive to take them out to shoot them and this is clearly after the fact you go back and you think about it and you go well hang on so this is an attempt on her life they ski away the parahawks are shooting at them ostensibly with real ammunition bond is a factor that they don't i guess they either assumed that they would take him out Mm. or he would be murdered there and then she would be able to report back to m that you know she didn't but how it ends is an avalanche of sorts, like a small avalanche where Bond deploys his jacket, which as Q demonstrated has a big puffy ball, mm. which acts like a safety barrier. And then she freaks out inside because, you know, she was a former kidnapping victim, so she's just kind of a claustrophobic attack, saying she can't breathe. Say she manipulates all of that. How was she to control all those variables? How was she to know that they wouldn't actually shoot Bond, you know, or yeah. does she have to rejig her plan once he survives? Was he supposed to die there? And then she's like, well, hang on, how else do I manipulate him? But she also kind of needs him alive so she can then kill him off later Yes. pipeline mm-hmm. with the plutonium. How was she to know that he would get out of bed with her? Because they, they go to bed together after the casino visit. And then uh, he gets out of bed and goes to investigate the assistant Davidoff. He finds out that Davidoff's got the body of this um, Russian scientist in the boot of his car, throws the body out, jumps in himself, follows him to this airport, jumps in the plane, pretends to be this Russian soldier, and then Renard later says to him, oh, you've done exactly what I wanted. You've been working for me. You got me the money at the start, and now you've got me. Like, they've mm. controlled a lot of variables, too. <laughs> like, yeah. No, no, they absolutely have. <laughs> you know, how were they going to know that Bond was absolutely put back on the case? I mean, I guess it's a Bond movie, but, yeah, there's a lot of things that had to go right for them, for their plan to yeah. work. And it's the trouble with this sort of story <laughs> structure where – you know, you, you do the big reveal, ah, I was the villain all along. And then, you know, you kind of start thinking about it. You're like, wait a second, but that would mean that, like, that happened, but you knew that that was going to – that what? Like, none of this makes any sense. Yeah. So you needed to have a crash landing avalanche ending to that Parahawk chase. Mm. And then you see, you know, the scientists talking to Renard when they reveal Renard, who's just hanging out at a 24-hour fire pit, basically. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) he's just in a big... It's like they couldn't meet in a hotel room. They had to take him to Welcome to the Devil's Breath. Let me tell you about how... Is that where he he lives? Like in a weird, like, fire cave? He lives in a fire cave. Uh, There's no reason for him to be there. Do you notice how his his reveal was very similar to Yanis's? Like the way Yanis kind of walks out 
into the light of the yeah. great in Russia and, and Renard walks out into the light of this fiery devil's Sure, breath. except yeah. like somehow like, like the, 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 the cave or the, the hangar that Yanis walks out of is far more impressive than the weird, <laughs> tiny opening that, that Renard comes strolling out of. It looks like something out of a playground or something. And I just love the way he has to like narrate. It's, I guess it's that Bond thing too of going, this is this natural gas emission and uh, Hindu pilgrims <laughs> would come here to test their devotion by holding the scalding rocks in their hand. Look, let me hold a scalding rock so you can see that I feel no pain. It is quite OTT. I didn't hate it, but it is very, it's, you yeah. know, we must meet at this point. We can't just meet in a hotel. Uh, we have to meet in a, in a suitably spooky <laughs> place. What I love is that um, in that scene, as far as the audience knows, Electra is not a villain. And so both of the guys are acting like they're going to get caught. Like it's like a, like, oh, I can't, people will know that I've like stolen things from the company and blah, blah, blah. It's like, but Electra knows that Electra's working with Reynard. Why would they have to hide anything? Or do they know? Or, or do they not know that she's working with Reynard? Yeah. And if not, why? Why? That just, why would you have that extra complication? I don't understand. <laughs> so true. It makes no sense. It makes no sense for them to have, for them not to know that they're working together. Yes. Because why would you introduce that variable? Yes. Well, they must do because when she's got that uh, big bodyguard uh, who's, let me look up his name, he's the dark-haired guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sasha Davidov? No, that's it. So, sorry, Gabor. John Seru as Gabor, Electric King's bodyguard, who is seen accompanying her wherever she travels. He knows she's in on it because later on when Bond and uh, Christmas Jones blow up, in inverted commas, in the pipeline – and they shoot everyone except M and take M prisoner. Like he's the one who starts the shooting. Like he's, yeah. he knows. So, so he's so, in on it. He's, he knows what's going on. Yeah. So it is confusing. Maybe the scientist didn't know. Maybe Davidoff knows, but the scientist but didn't. Why would the scientist not know? Because he's, he's a patsy. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I, sure. I, Again, it makes no sense. And it, it, it's something that the, the movie has done to itself. It has introduced this weird inconsistency by having all these like twists and turns. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's the fundamental structure underneath it starts to get, just don't think too much about it. But again, <laughs> I, I do have a bit of a soft spot for them trying this, you know, fairly complicated idea or, or trying to at least make it all work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're swinging for the fences and it's just that they, they instead they strike out. Like it's just yeah. not, yeah. I would like to continue telling you my list, Stu, but in the time that we've been talking, one of my foster cats has decided that sitting on my notebook is exactly the spot where she must <laughs> sit uh, at this point in time. So I'm just going to try to attempt to slightly move her out of the way. Uh, there you go, kitten. Let me just pick you up for a little second. Okay, next point is... Oh, yes, I wrote M is involved more. And I think this is Mm. something that they do really well here that is picked up by the Daniel Craig era and particularly in Skyfall with the whole Xavier Bardem's character wanting revenge on M. That's done in this movie first. I I mean, I think it's a testament to Judi Dench's popularity that they went, let's involve Judi Dench more. Let's make her a part of it. Because typically M would be seen at the very start, giving Bond his mission, and then maybe at the end poking his head in and going, stop having sex with that woman, Bond. Uh, <laughs> even, even though I mean, by now he should yeah, not that, do that. That's... That is M's role in these movies. <laughs> 
But until this one, until she starts to become, you know, a political tool, it's her decision to stop Robert King paying for Electra's uh, ransom sure. to try to give them time to catch Renard that Electra's like, well, screw you, I'm going to now kill you quite spectacularly <laughs> in revenge. And I think they pick that up and do more with that. Oh, well, I don't think it's new and original when they do it in the Daniel Craig films. It starts here. No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely the first time that Judy Dench as M gets involved personally with with a, a mission. And again, like, like it's something, it's, it's experimental. It's something that the franchise had never really attempted before. Yeah, she goes into the field. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and not just to sit in a like a MI6 remote base under a pyramid. <laughs> no, yes. I'm not, not that there's anything wrong with that. No, I'm, I'm very on board with with secret I, pyramid bases, as I, you well know. Uh, we both are. It's it's a it's a classic ingredient that we both adore. Oh yes. They're very much just replicating the office in an exotic locale, whereas this sure. is going. I have to go into the field. I have to be on the ground. I've got to help out Electra because I feel guilty that I didn't help save her earlier, and her dad died in my office. Yeah, I didn't get the thing with the with the clock. She needed to get the clock, but I didn't know what for. Oh, she it, needed to get the batteries. That's right. Yeah, yeah she needed the battery the to fire off the locator card. Sure, and she, I, I quite like that, that that she did a bit of yeah, she did spycraft, some I guess, like like or, or yeah. certainly yeah, like like she using ingenuity to get the the tracker working again. That's very good. Yeah, she's like self reliant, and she's not you know because she's been poised as the st- statistician, the accountant. But she's actually got some good sense in terms of being a spy, mm. which is great. So she's she's able to, you know, if it wasn't for her doing that, then they wouldn't have found her because they make that reference with uh, Robbie Coltrane where they're like, there's all these places that a sub could could go. But it's only when they get her signal that they realize, OK, it's, ah, it's yeah. there. But then they don't even need to because uh, Goldie, the rapper, sets off his bomb and then they just immediately capture Bond and... <laughs> and uh, Christmas Jones and take them to the <laughs> Maiden Tower anyway. So to the place where they needed to be. Where yeah. The place where they needed to be. So that was a little bit fudged yeah. for sure. But again, it's yeah, I think you're right. Probably the message of this movie is they're really trying stuff and then having to kind of squeeze the, the square pegs into round holes to make yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they just keep getting in their own way. It's very, it's very sad to watch. Weirdly enough, I wrote hologram because that's how they displayed Renard's head in this like big hologram. Oh, yeah. And it's happened in TV shows, too, where they love putting holograms up. They love, like, doing – and the Marvel movies even now still do it mm. where you see Iron Man, like, flicking holograms into the air. And sure, yeah, he has, he has the <laughs> – Inventing time travel just with a few holograms and stuff. And even in, like, your CSIs and stuff, they've got people using their hands to, like, scroll through holograms and point at its – it's yeah. like, how do we make this very boring scene about identifying someone interesting? Holograms, everyone. It's holograms. And I imagine real police look at that going, we just have to, like, <laughs> sit at a computer and just click a mouse button down and down and down. Yeah. <laughs> but I did love the way that they have the bullet going through the head. And then the other thing about that uh, where Bond is trying to realise that the um, the five million paid – which ties back to the pre-credit sequence, but the, the the money that Bond recovers at the start of the film, pre the title sequence, mm. it's three million pounds and thirty thousand pounds and thirty pounds, like three oh three oh three oh three oh three, and that he he puts that into a an exchange rate, and it's exactly five yes. million. Pounds. Yes, I know. Five million dollars, sorry, US. It's a good it's thing a, there weren't any big movements on the stock market. Exactly. Between, you know. <laughs> and it's it's very confusing when Electra's abduction happened. When he pulls up her file, it's got a photo of her and it mentions I, I saw it briefly as it flashed by, it mentioned her age as twenty one. 
and the fact that her earlobe was taken. So it actually does say earlobe, and I'd never noticed that before because she doesn't reveal that she has the earlobe missing until uh, later on, mm. or at least reveals that she made them do it. But, yeah, it says, so is, is she 21 now or is that when she was abducted? Because it sort of seems to have been some years back that she was abducted. Yeah. But it's never really clear how long she's had this thing going with, with Renard. Like, how long has he been out and about with that bullet in his head? Surely she's not meant to be 21 in this movie. Yeah, I was a bit, uh, yeah, confused. But that does mean that, like, it, it also then becomes implausible that she's maintained this relationship with this man with a bullet in his brain yeah. <laughs> for 10 years or whatever. Yeah. Like, uh, so it's yeah. So I could kind of see her being... 26 27 kind of at the youngest to be sure. believably i don't know maybe i'm wrong but it, again it's that weird thing where bond is roughly 40 or in his early 40s so if she had been a 21 year old like played by a 21 year old it would have looked strange she would have yes, looked exactly you know, yeah well, um, so- sophie marceau was in her early 30s in this movie she was like 33 or 34 or something so and that's to me i could see her as like 27 26 but 21 bit of a long bow but you're right yeah. it, it, it then again it's that structural thing of yeah she got abducted a bit ago <laughs> you know it's like yeah and at a point in the past she was abducted and now she's fine now yeah and uh very strange yes and then the other thing about that scene just with all the computers is that they've got still got the big beige box computers from the night it's- <laughs> Bless them! Oh, I, that's how I learned. On well, the- I mean, that, that was the computers were around, Natalie. Yeah. That, that's how. Well, that's what computers look like. We had big beige boxes, yeah. but you notice that Bond is using them as touch screens, so he's like zooming in and touching yeah. the things, and it's like that all would have been programmed to respond to him touching it, like touch it now, and it'll zoom in and touch it. You know, because they weren't touch screens back then. No, she- absolutely not. No, <laughs> this was this was science fiction. But it's just something that. I never noticed before and totally rings true as, as something they would do to go, oh, look, these computers are advanced. They're touchscreen. Yeah, you can touch them. You can touch the big CRT monitor. Exactly. <laughs> you know, my, my I use Apple MacBooks and they still aren't touchscreen. You know, the iPads are obviously and a lot of the other laptop notebook hybrids are touchscreen. Sort of yeah. But mine is still not a, a touchscreen. <laughs> And thank goodness, really, because it would it gets grubby enough without my fingers. Yeah, exactly, yeah. All over it. Pouring at it all the time. So that was some fun tech stuff that I noticed. Also, um, rocket boat. We yes, had, yes. The, the, we had stealth boat last year and then uh, last week, sorry, with Tomorrow Never Dies. Now we've got rocket boat. Rocket boat. Which, as Q later says, is his fishing boat for his retirement. <laughs> Apparently his fishing boat needs a dive function. I mean, sure. You want to get to the fish, Natalie. It's true. It's, this is another movie where where Pierce Brosnan is wet a lot in this movie. And again... He's extremely wet in this opening sequence. In this opening sequence and in the closing sequence on the submarine. Like, he's wet a lot. He does the full swan dive into the water. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Pierce. Thank you for, for taking that bullet and just letting yourself be dripping soggy and um i don't know it's just it's, it's an attractive look you've got these really you know good looking dark-haired men i mean look glistening i'm all about it but we know that um but there's yeah, nothing wrong with it that opening sequence was the longest so far in a bond film i was gonna say it goes for a long it's, time yeah it's, it's a full action sequence it's 14 minutes 
by comparison, I think the GoldenEye one is about 9.10, that whole thing yeah. in Russia, the 1986 thing. Now, the reason why they were going to end it at the Bill Bow sequence, so you know how he goes and gets the money from Bill Bow and you see the Guggenheim in the background and he gets the money and the woman says, would you like to look at my figures? And he says, I'm sure they're perfectly rounded. And then he uses his glasses to blow up his gun and kill some people and then sure. repels out of the window. That's where they were going to cut it and go to credits. But when they did initial testing audiences, everyone went, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit dull. <laughs> and to be fair, it kind of is. It's quite a low-key start. It, yeah. it is for a Bond film. It is quite a low-key start. It's a bit of spy work for sure, but it's just a cool gunfight and then he repels out the window. Cool. So then they went, okay, well, let's move the credits till after the scene on the Thames with the, the boats chasing each other. So that whole segment was moved into the pre-credit sequence just to get the excitement of that that boat chase. But, of course, that means that they have to introduce M and they have to introduce Mr King and have the money blow up and, you know, they have to kind of get into full plot. Before the titles. They can get to the action sequence and then have, you know, the titles finally after Bond falls onto the Millennium Dome. And how, I mean, that... That really does set this movie in time and place. Oh, and you yeah. wonder how much the City of London paid them to feature the Millennium <laughs> Dome. Because the Millennium Dome, I don't need, I think it's, is it called the O2 now? Is that what it's called? Anyway, it was built for the Millennium Dome. It was, it was the big, it was like an exhibition and it had various things in it. And um, the dome, the structure itself still exists and is now a key exterior feature of the O2. Yes, which is the big music right. sort of performance venue. But, yeah, the exhibition inside was um, was was dropped and apparently it didn't get the numbers that it anticipated. You know, it was supposed to draw all these crowds for the big end of the century sort of party. party. Yeah, it's the O2 Arena now. But it was very controversial because it cost a, a shit ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone went, why are we paying all this money for something nobody really wants? And you wonder how much that they sort of went, well, if we get it in a Bond film... <laughs> Yeah, people like, will like it then, right? See it, you know? Personally, just love that that they go from this quite impressive, really, like high speed boat chase to a hot air balloon. Yes, and she thinks she's going to get away somehow. Yeah, she's like, oh, I'll get away on this. This will be great. Yeah. And so she has to kind of blow herself up because clearly some plane would come past and just go, all right then. Like she'd come down in a field and everyone would just be waiting for her. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's a hot air balloon. It's not. It's a hot air balloon. You can. You, it's very slow. Yeah. That's <laughs> my point. It's very slow, Natalie. Very uh, slow. But but again, it's it's one of those things that sort of makes me wonder. Like like the film sets up that Renard is such a a horrible person or so, such a terrifying figure mm. that she'd rather kill herself than tell Bond anything. But then we find out that it's all Electra. Well. Like, was i think that's the point is because he okay. kidnapped her as part of a terrorist plot and he'd been in as bond says all the usual vacation spots like afghanistan and iraq and iran and uh serbia i think maybe sure. yeah the balkans so it's all the kind of 90s hot spots i think he probably was a big scary terrorist guy and he dined out on that even once he got cat thrashed i think is the term <laughs> um <laughs> i think it's a I think I heard that from a uh, Tom Baker in that uh, Monica the Glen show. I think I remember. Right. It's Tom. Imagine Tom Baker going. I believe the term is cat thrashed. <laughs> <laughs> I 
that's where I got that from. But uh, yes. Fantastic. Yeah. So I look, I, I love the sequence. I think it's really fun. And what it does set up too, which is interesting, is that Bond is doing this whole mission with a really fucked up shoulder. Yeah, which is something that sort of is a plot point and sort of isn't. It's a, it's a, it's a convenient when needed fucked up shoulder yeah like like it's one of the keys of him suspecting electra because someone knows about his oh i think renard knows about his fucked up shoulder yes and the only he says the only way that he could know is through electra but she quite rightly points out that like his his (laughs) medical records can be hacked like you know he's yeah he was wearing his arm was in a sling yeah you know it's like yeah she makes a reasonable point Turns, yeah. turns out she's just manipulative and, and lying, but, like, it's a reasonable point. Exactly. And I do like the fact that it allows Pierce to do some of that really hurt-faced acting that you brought up oh, yes. during oh, GoldenEye. Yeah. All about that. Loves a... <laughs> <laughs> A lot of grimacing. He, he lands... Like, you, you believe that someone is pressing on his fucked up shoulder. Yes. But it, it's sort of to counter him to Renard, you know. It's to show that I think if, if I was to try and get a bit deep and proper film analytical about it, you would say that it shows him to be someone who is alive. You know, he is... He can feel the pain. Absolutely, um, yeah. He's not a robot like Renard. He's, you know, able to, to feel pain and yet push beyond it because he's James Absolutely. Bond. That that is something that the film clearly intended, and you still have to go for a long walk to make it work. Ah, <laughs> oh, I thought I was being really deep. No, 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 no. You, you absolutely like uh, are making like like you are going where the film needs you to go, but the film is asking you to take a very long walk to get where it wants you to go. Yes, and it is it is interesting that he it, it's it's one of those injuries where it's a broken collarbone or a dislocated collarbone or something, so it's he's still able to work with it. But the way he shrugs off that sling at the very start to hook up yeah. with the sexy doctor is, yeah, it's just like, yeah, that's, yeah, very, that's very Bond. That's very yeah. Bond. I was, yeah, very happy with that. Mostly because, as we've seen previously, like, it really does help that the, the woman is into it too. Yes, she is. <laughs> it's, she's a very forward medical professional. Then she has that, that little moment with Money Petty later on. Yes, that's right. But she's obviously got a history with Bond because she says to him, like, you'll have to call me this time or something. And he's like, oh, absolutely, I will. Never <laughs> calling her again until the next time I need a medical. <laughs> uh, I like it a lot. I, so, yeah, so I do like that opening chase. I think it's really fun and it is inventive and it does a boat chase in a, a different way. Um, this, is, this is the thing. I, I can remember at the time that that boat chase was very famous because obviously they had to shoot it on the Thames. Yes, And so yes. there was all this news footage and paparazzi photos of them filming that sequence. Yeah. And, and it was sort of like free publicity for the movie in a way. I was really excited to see this movie. Yeah. When it first came out. Can you imagine now doing that? Because there would be so much more with mobile phones and yeah. Twitter and like there'd be so <laughs> but it'd be so much harder to even Well they, they know, would probably shoot it all on the soundstage. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's the glory of it that you can see so many sights and sounds of of yeah, London as, exactly. as you go past. You know, it's like, oh look, I'll never go there again thanks to COVID nineteen, but it's nice to <laughs> nice to dream. <laughs> I hope that's not true, but who knows? Robbie Coltrane, I like that they brought him back in this film. I think his Tom Selinski, when we were doing Goldeneye, says his character is not as much fun in this one, and I think there's probably an argument for that. But it's also nice that he has a bit of a story. He's part of Electra's operation in a way, but he's not 
fully in it and he helps in the end to to take her down and gets a bit of a heroic death so bond's kind of a dick to him for no reason yeah i just think like he's constantly pointing guns at him (laughs) yes well that whole sequence where he goes because you sort of forget about him for a while and then after the pipe bomb explodes he says i think there's something here i'm overlooking and she says plutonium or something and then he goes no caviar (laughs) (laughs) and then they go to his factory and it gets attacked by renard's men and bond is able to somehow fight them all off even though his car gets sawn in half (laughs) they get attacked by giant saws that i think must be made out of lightsabers because they just (laughs) slice through anything yes everything else is made of butter and uh, <laughs> and the thing is, is that his car is destroyed. But at the very end of the film, when they're zooming in with the uh, heat-seeking technology, they find his car. Yeah, yeah, in, he, he has a backup. In Istanbul, I guess. he has a backup, or he's had his repaired by an incredibly good. <laughs> yes. uh, I was going to say knocking shop, but that's not what a mechanic yeah, that's is. That's not what a mechanic is called, Natalie. What am that I is thinking? A of? Different type of establishment. <laughs> a very different type of establishment. There's still somewhere you can get Service. a little change. Yeah, <laughs> yours is better. So, yeah, so his car gets destroyed, but somehow is miraculously back in one piece by the end of the film. And it doesn't really say how they get out of that factory because his car, Robbie Coltrane's car, gets sunk in the water. In the water. Bond's car gets cut in half. Like- and the helicopters are destroyed. So I don't yes. know how they get back to <laughs> the city or wherever they have to go next. Is swim? I mean, what? <laughs> You know, he's there to interrogate Zakovsky about his relationship to Elektra. They then have a big fight with Renard and the uh, saw choppers. And then uh, Zakovsky falls into his big tub of t- caviar and Bond is like, okay, so where were we? And then he interrogates him. Yeah. And it's just chill, you know, it's chill. Anyway, so apart from that, I mentioned this ski trip that doesn't really make sense. What is going <laughs> on with the plot? Mention the caviar. Let's then get to Denise Richards and Christmas Jones and talk a bit to that. The elephant in the room. So according to the Wikipedia page, it says that uh, Richards stated that she liked the role because it was brainy, athletic and had depth of character in contrast to Bond girls from previous decades. Richards stated that a lot of viewers made fun of the character's attire, but that these Bond girls are so outrageous and if I did really look like a scientist, the Bond fans would have been disappointed. Writer Ben Busty stated in a Yahoo Movies article that it's clear that Eon were never aiming especially high with this character since they reportedly auditioned Tiffany Thiessen, who you oh, might right. remember yes. from uh, Saved by the Bell. I know, I know. I'm familiar with her work. And Jerry Ginger Spice Halliwell for the role. Oh, my God. And this this would have been like peak Spice Girls. It is post Spice Girls because she left the Spice Girls in 98, I think. Right, okay. So, I mean, that that would have been pure stunt casting at that point. Absolutely. But can you even imagine? <laughs> Hello, I'm Jerry. I'm a <laughs> Hello, nuclear- I'm a nuclear physicist. So I think maybe compared to that, Denise Richards is looking kind of good. Sure. <laughs> but she did get a lot of flack. Uh, she was one of the main things that people pointed out as not being um, she's an easy target that's what i think i think it is a bit unfair i think she copped a lot that oh no i think it's fair (laughs) (laughs) i just think i just think she's an easy target for the general missteps of this film it's not (laughs) it's not her fault that this film is like a, a mess 
Yes. So <laughs> it says here that Richards was widely criticised for not being credible in the role of a nuclear scientist, with Variety calling her the least plausible nuclear physicist in the history of movies, who makes even the electrochemist Elizabeth Shue played in 1997's The Saint sound like a Nobel laureate. <laughs> And Nathan Rabin, the critic, panned her performance and called it so laughably awful that the film comes to a dead stop whenever she's on screen. It's very harsh, but fair. Well, I feel a bit sorry for Denise Richards, mostly from like context after the part, because she was married to Charlie Sheen for a while. And that, (laughs) you know, I feel like she deserves points. You wouldn't wish that on anyone. No. Poor woman. But she's a bit of an interesting actress. Denise Richards, she's had a sort of a strange career because she was very popular in a few, like she was in that Wild Things movie that was very, very. Yeah, and- she, she uh, oh, that was after, yeah, I'm just looking at her filmography now. So obviously um, she was in Starship Troopers, which is well, her I've big. I've still never seen Starship Troopers. I understand that it's a, apparently a great film. Uh, it's very good. I like it a lot, yeah. And a really good satire that people didn't get at the time. At the time, people thought it was, like, face value. They're like, what's this borderline fascistic, like... <laughs> <laughs> Why are these people dressed like Nazis? I don't understand. It's not a subtle film, but people didn't get it. But, yeah, no, Um, and she was in Wild Things, and then she was in The World Was Not Enough, and then she was in a couple of very, like, like very not... Um, that was kind of it for her for a while. Yeah. No, the same year, 1999, Drop Dead Gorgeous. She was in that with, yeah. I think, Kirsten Dunst. Yes. She was quite popular for a while, but now she's in The Bold and the Beautiful. Is she? Um, yeah, and she does a lot of uh, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills type shows as well. Well, I knew, so I, I knew she was doing a lot of reality stuff. I didn't realise she was like, on a literal soap opera. That's crazy. I mean, I don't mean to denigrate her. Like, everyone's got to make a living and all that no, sort of stuff. She's been in movies, like... Yeah, it does seem a bit odd. So I, I guess you got to pay the bills. Like, good. I'm glad she's working. I don't know. I feel a bit, um, a bit kindly towards Denise Richards because I think, yes, she may have been miscast, but at the same time, look, Nicole Kidman was the sexy brain surgeon in Days of Thunder. Hollywood is known to do this <laughs> kind of stunt casting where you get someone very, you know, sexy and put them in cute outfits and do you know what i think it is too is the fact that sophie marceau is a genuinely great actor and so like she's that one of the sex one of the two main sexy bond girls in this movie and the other one is denise richards and so (laughs) when denise richards is like you don't look russian it's like uh yep and and this is and this is what i mean with american bond girls they just don't – and maybe this is perception from me as an Australian. I think it would be the same if there was an Australian Bond girl. I think it could be really jarring, but maybe not for the rest of the world. Mm. But for for me, I think it would be jarring to have someone going, James, even if it's a nice Australian accent, not like, hey, Jim, mate, uh, get over here. <laughs> or, or like a Kathleen Kim style, um, excuse me, James, but I don't think M would be very happy with you. Look at me trying to improvise and not being able to – it's been a week. Um, but, <laughs> but there hit, is that, something, hit that rising inflection. You know, Sophie, yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> my name well, is Bond. Well, Mr. Bond, if you <laughs> yeah. could just step over there, please. Bond, James Bond. Oh, that's nice. Different, isn't it? Yeah, that's unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Stop eating my dippity bix, Bond. Sorry, I'm just quoting <laughs> Kathy Kim now. <laughs> God rest him. 
You can just imagine Sharon Strzelecki getting a crush on James Bond and making him play netball or something. So bring Kathleen Kim back and do that storyline. Absolutely. But yes, yeah, so there's definitely something when the someone like Sophie Marceau, who was so elegant and French, and again, I don't mean to essentialize or I, I'm talking from an admiring sense. Of, sure, of, sure, sure. You know, she's got this this cool beauty, you know, she's, you know, this this placid lake that indicates swirling depths beneath, you know. Yes. And then you've got Denise Richards going, hey, someone's going to have my ass. It's jarring compared to that. While dressed like Lara Croft. And the thing is, is that Jill St. John is in Diamonds Are Forever, if you compare her only other real Bond girl is Plenty O'Toole, who's also American. So you have kind of two brash Americans being brash That's Americans. True. So it doesn't seem to clash as much. But when you've got a really beautiful, exotic European or South American, like, for example, in Live and Let Die, uh, no, not Live and Let Die, um, License to Kill, you've got uh, Lupe, who's kind of that exotic South American, and then you've got Pam Bouvier, who's a very straight-talking uh, North American, it does clash a bit. It sort of plays that up a bit more. Um, well, but I think that's the exception that proves the rule, though, because in that film, like, I, I don't have a problem with either of their performances. No, no, no. Pa- well, Pam Pam is playing an ex-CIA agent and kind of smuggler type. She's well, an not- ex-army. Um, yeah, ex-army, person, but yeah. she's she's got a sense of resourcefulness about her. Yeah. She's not playing a nuclear physicist, and there's something about that. <laughs> if Denise Richards had come in as ex-CIA agent turned nuclear yeah. smuggler, I think that would have played fine. I think it's sure. just the fact that people can't seem to picture women, A, as scientists, or B, as good-looking scientists. So well, that's I, true. there's definitely a bit of sexism that feeds into that criticism having said that she's also not particularly strong in the role but i don't know if that's entirely her fault like the role clearly wasn't written to be the most strong like if you think about lois charles she's probably the closest that you get she's an astrophysicist you know she's a she's a space scientist in moonraker and you know is she more believable than denise richards one might yes because she seems a little bit older she seems a little bit more mature or more elegant a bit classier. And yet, weirdly, um, she turns out to be a CIA operative. Yes. Uh, and and I also had a problem with her performance in that movie, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. Interesting. So I guess it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. Is it what came first, sort of the underwritten role or the bad, you know, acting choices? I don't really want to condemn Denise Richards too much because feminism. No, well, well totally. And also, so like, you know, she, she comes in for a lot of personal criticism for her acting in this movie. And it's like, she's not the worst thing in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Like, come on, man. Definitely, I think you're right in saying that she and Pierce Brosnan don't have the best chemistry. Like, he has a lot of chemistry with Sophie Marceau. He has so much chemistry with Sophie Marceau and just nothing with Denise Richards. It's really weird. Yeah. What did you make of that scene? I'd forgotten about the scene where, because Bond and Elektra are doing all this kind of sexy ice play, and then she... (laughs) She gets Renard to, you know, use ice on her and it implies that he's kind of going, you know, downtown. Indeed, yes. To Antarctica, let's Mm -hmm. say, and she's sort of moaning and and stuff and he's just kind of... To her polar region. (laughs) 
South Pole, the magnetic, <laughs> the magnetic South Pole. And he just seems to be like really weirded out by it. And it's like, I mean, I know he can't feel anything now, but surely the bullet hasn't struck his like empathy or his memory of, you know, physical intimacy or something. It, yeah, it's, it's very confused. It's, a, it's yeah. a confused motivation for him. You're not quite sure what's going on. Like he punches something and like she pulls a bit of glass out because he just he can't feel it. But yeah, yeah. It, like but the whole thing is very strange. I mean, I can't really think off the top of my head of a, a moment that's really about a female in a Bond movie's kind of pleasure with no, as in as in a very determined, not to say that the women haven't been eager and well, willing love, lovers in the past, but it's, a, it's a, a very strange kind of domination slash, I don't know, am I getting into weird territory? No, 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 but, but I, I think you, I actually, I think you've hit on a really interesting point, which is that this is one of the very, very few times in the entire franchise where it's literally only the woman's pleasure that yeah. is the, the focus and the franchise treats it as horrific. Do you think so? <laughs> well, it's it, they're treating it as as this this awful like you know like they're focusing on the fact that like Renard can't feel anything and that that's the whole point of it is it's this tortured thing you know and, and so it's one of the only moments in the entire franchise <laughs> where a woman's pleasure <laughs> is centered and the the franchise is like what a tragedy. Well, I I don't think I'd go that far, but I yeah I think it's 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 the the point is is that Bond isn't there. <laughs> So that's why it can't be. <laughs> that's why you can have a moment of a woman only. But this is not to say that women, you know, aren't important equal partners in Bond's lovemaking because they very much are. Sure. <laughs> you don't get the impression he's had any complaints, but uh, you know, that's certainly. Right. I, mean, I think we discussed this with the Roger Moore era that Roger mm. oh, Moore yeah. was the very female-focused Bond. <laughs> having, having said that, having seen, you know, I think Timothy Dalton probably would uh, would be very generous. Maybe that's just my personal, <laughs> <laughs> having seen the Jimmy Dolphins. Well, clearly he would be. Someone that ruggedly handsome wouldn't uh, leave you hanging. Um, sure. But <laughs> this podcast goes to weird places. I've been trying to get my dad into podcasts, and I, for some reason, signed him up to this. And I'm like, oh, I hope they don't actually listen. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be awkward. <laughs> <laughs> real awkward i said oh look it's just me and Stu just talking a lot you already hear me talk dad you hate listening to me talk and talk and talk so just don't listen <laughs> that's the end of my list uh talking about christmas jones was there anything else that came to mind for you with the world is not enough <laughs> well i mean as i said natalie it's kind sure. of it's kind of a movie that i forgot almost immediately after i finished watching it which isn't a great sign yeah, it's not great. Um, I, I, you know, like I said, like the 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 general gist of it is that I think it's really interesting and kind of admirable that they tried some things with this movie, but it's just kind of hilarious that literally nothing they try works. Certainly not for me. Everything to do with with the twists, with the villains, the central conceit of both of the villains is kind of ham-fisted and weird. Their interplay bond in this movie feels kind of like chasing his own tail in a lot of a lot of it like he's kind of playing catch up a lot of the time which is not great you know denise richards for all that we defended her before is not good in this film <laughs> and well do you realize that she this is the first bond film that gets a golden raspberry a razzie oh and really for denise richards as worst supporting actress I, I suspect it's not the last uh well you'll be pleased to know that richards and brosnan were also nominated for worst screen couple but they lost to Will Smith and Kevin Klein for Wild Wild West. 
I love the Razzies. They're well, always well deserved. They're always inventive. <laughs> <laughs> I have one story where I have a bit of a claim to fame with this oh, okay. film. Yeah. So this is actually before I met you, Stu, but way back in the day, I used to work for a uh, popular rock radio station here in Brisbane. Yes. I know, I, I know the one. <laughs> do, you, do you know this story? Have I told you this story? No, no, I, I know the station. I know oh, the you station. know the station. Okay. It's uh, three consonants. Let's just say that. Um, <laughs> it was triple M. I don't think it's a, wrong to say that. Was, but yeah. back in the early 2000s, I think it was when the Big Day Out was very popular and then Brisbane had a festival called Livid, which was very popular, music mm. festival. And so the commercial radio stations um, in the major capitals decided they wanted to get on this train and go, well, let's do music festivals aimed at our listeners and try and make a shitload of money off them. Mm -hmm. Of course, they didn't go super well. I think that uh, B105 and its versions in Sydney and Melbourne did a a festival called Rumba, which was all pop acts and stuff, and that did okay. And so the next year they relaunched it and they also expanded it to Triple M and did a festival called M1. Yes. And the Brisbane Festival... I remember this festival. Did you go to it? I got a free ticket to this festival. Everyone got a free ticket. Yeah, to everyone fest- got a free ticket to this festival. It was because crazy. Nobody bought tickets. I got about ten friends in for free because, yeah. and it was just I was working in the newsroom at the time, and they just were like, "Do you have friends? Do you have friends?" And they were doing like giveaways on air, going exclusive M1 tickets. These are really hard to get, and they were just giving them away. Like I yeah. don't actually know anyone who paid for a ticket to no, that yeah, show. Yeah, we're, a bunch of us went, and we, we none of us paid. I, I think. Yeah, I think they took a massive bath on that festival because yeah. it never happened again. It only happened the one time. But they were asking people from the station to volunteer. And so I had done an early morning news shift, so, you know, 4 a.m. till 10 a.m. Mm. And then I got into my little M1 T-shirt and I went out to, I think it was QE2 Stadium where it happened, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, it was. And I was on, like, one of the inside artist assistance kind of tense things. So my job was just to be there to help artists if they needed anything and then to be a runner a bit later in the day Mm. so I saw Nickelback backstage (laughs) all right yeah I didn't talk to them because I you know have self-respect the best person I chatted to was Frank Woodley from Lano and Woodley oh awesome yeah who who came up to me because I was sitting with a couple of other volunteers and he just came up going oh I'm looking for this stage or something and I went oh my god I love you I'll take you there like I was just really excited to see him. And uh, I remember complimenting him about a character that he played on the games. Do you remember the Olympic show with John? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He plays this vet on the games who's a TV vet, but he's not an actual vet. And in (laughs) real life, he hates animals. And he's brought in to kind of give an assessment about animals, but then it slowly comes out that he hates animals and is only a TV vet. And I told him, I love that performance so much. And he was like, nobody's ever told me that before. Like, I assume he gets, you know, credit for his live comedy with Leno and the Leno and Woodley show all the time. But I had been very specific about this one guest role. (laughs) Anyway, so that was a great, had a great uh, conversation with him. There are a few other people I saw. They had good people at this concert. They had Midnight Oil as the headliners. They had Billy Idol. Mm. They also had like a small crappy second stage where they put a lot of the smaller bands. And I'm talking like really small. I'm talking like the size of my living room, you know, my flat. It was, yeah, a, it was, a, it was a weird setup because like other festivals have like multiple stages and, and you know, you've got your big stage and then you've got like a medium stage and then you've got like a little like tent. Yeah. This one just had the giant stage for the, the main acts and then like this tiny little stage at the other side of the 
yes, off the field. In, it was inside. weird. Yeah, it was really weird. And they did comedy there earlier in the day and then brought on other bands. And I remember introducing like this band. Someone was like, we need someone to introduce this band. Does anyone want to introduce this band? Like, it was, <laughs> clearly organisation had not been. I went, Oh, man. Because, you know, I emceed and did improv and stuff at the time. I was not scared of a microphone. So I was like, ladies and gentlemen, please. And like there were literally 20 people standing there because everyone else was outside or in the stands. And I was like, please welcome this band. And I, I feel like they went on to have a bit of a, a name, but I couldn't even tell you who they were. Like there was someone that if I said their name, if I could remember, you'd be like, oh, I have a vague recollection, but not anything, you know, fancy. Midnight All were the main headliners and Billy Idol, but Garbage was the other big band. Sure. So they, got, they got really big names for this this festival, but they just could not sell tickets. And I think it was because Livid was still happening very soon after M1 or just before or just after. And so all of the cool music kids saved their money for Livid and everyone else who was a Triple M listener just went, well, I'll just call up and see if I can win free tickets. <laughs> and that's what they did. <laughs> and so I don't know how, but I got to be one of the runners accompanying Garbage when they arrived because they arrived like later in the day and I was oh, with wow. them. When, yeah, so this was Shirley Manson had just done her cool haircut where she dyed her, she cut her red hair and dyed it blonde and she was doing like androgyny and stuff. And I remember, it's a bit cringe now because I remember a few friends would be like, oh, my God, you've got to tell Shirley Manson I love her and I'd like want to touch her. And I think I said that to her and I remember her going in a Scottish accent, well, maybe you should just better keep that to yourself. <laughs> Which is good, but she signed my T-shirt, and I don't know where that T-shirt ended up, but somewhere, uh, if I hadn't thrown it out, I have a T-shirt with Triple M1 and then Shirley Manson's signature on it. And I asked her if they would be performing The World Is Not Enough, of course, the title song of this film. Sure. And she said no, and she said that it's not a particularly happy memory for them. Oh, okay. I said, oh, my God, was Barbara Broccoli horrible? And she just kind of looked at me and sort of didn't, you know, gave me a look but didn't really say anything. And I was like, oh, my God, I have gossip. I have showbiz gossip. Oh, my God. But, yeah, they didn't perform it. They did, you know, heaps of other hits, of course. But I got the sense from her and I've got nothing else to go on apart from a two-second conversation <laughs> in 2004 that perhaps that it wasn't a particularly fun experience for them to record this song which is a shame because it's a belter i really like this song yeah it's, it's good it's a good one i like it way more than um tomorrow never dies yes it's it's much bondier it's co-written with david arnold who composed the score and don black and it is ranked by ign whoever they are as the ninth best James Bond film. And in 2012, Grantland ranked the song as the second best Bond song of all time behind only Goldfinger. Wow, that's which, insanely high. <laughs> yeah, that's really high. Like I would maybe, I'd throw it in the top 10 for sure, but I don't think I'd put it ahead of uh, Live and Let Die. Because yeah, I was, I was going to say like, that's a list that also includes like Live and Let Die Live by die. Sir Paul McCartney. You know that, right? Live and Let Die. <laughs> Um, and of course, Jesus. it also now includes the rains and you Sorry. Of course it does. We're, we're getting closer to Spectre, Stu. We sure are. We're honing in on Spectre. It's going to happen. I'm going to have to. Inevitable. I'm going to have to watch that film again. <laughs> I could be wrong. It's... I could be so wrong about everything. I am fascinated to, to see if this puts it in a new context for you. Mm. I, I am too. I'm looking forward to it. But. 
before we get to that, we have to finish off the Brosnan era with Die Another Day. We, we certainly do. Before we get to that, we need to rank this movie. Uh, yes. <laughs> now, do you have a clear idea about where you're putting it in your list? Do I ever? Of oh. course I don't. But <laughs> can I say I have totally forgotten where I put Tomorrow Never Dies. Do you remember? Oh, really? I think I put it after License to Kill. I think I put it in 10th spot. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yes. Because I put it directly below the Daltons as well, and my Daltons are flipped for yours. So I I, I go License to Kill, Living Daylights, and Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes. I think you do the opposite. You do Living Daylights, License to Kill, and Tomorrow Never Dies. Okay. I think at the time I liked this film more than Tomorrow Never Dies, but on this rewatch I really think that Tomorrow Never Dies is just a more cohesive Yeah. Bond oh, and Jonathan Price is so nuts. Yes. I was yes. I was thinking about that actually. I was wondering because remember how I talked about that they did a bit of work on he and Terry Hatcher's roles because they weren't entirely happy with them. Mm. I wonder if his performance was born out of a I don't really like this role so fuck it I'm just gonna chew the scenery. Or, or like you know th- this this role is very underwritten so I'm really gonna have to like chew some scenery to, to make sure that it works. I'm just gonna have the time of my life. Either way, whatever motive him it's so in your face that i love it absolutely so i think this will have to go further down i don't think i can put this higher than on her majesty's secret service definitely not (laughs) which is 11 on my list but i think i could put it higher than thunderball okay well that's which is remember thunderball's a lot higher on my list than it is on yours it's it's much higher on your list than it is on mine it's currently at 13 so i think i could definitely shove it in under on her majesty's secret service and put it in at 13th place very nice well there's not enough that's not a bad spot that's not a bad spot i feel like a lot lower as well do i want to put it lower i see this movie put quite high on some rankings and i see it put very low on some rankings very low i've I've, some rankings have it as the worst film that's insane it is this this is a perfectly workmanlike bond film this is not this is not a disaster by any means but but it is a failure of a film like i i I just yeah (laughs) And it's interesting because it's like, well, should I put it under Thunderball then? Because I do think that Thunderball still works as a film. This film is the same length as Thunderball. Uh, uh, no, no, actually, Natalie, I'll, I'll, I'll just stop you there. I, I don't think that's okay. true. Oh, Let okay. me just check my notes here. Uh, I think, yes, actually, The World Is Not Enough. Uh, what, what, what's the runtime that you have there? It's for two hours and eight. Yeah, so, 100, yeah. 125 minutes. Yeah. Um, so uh, Thunderball is actually three weeks long. Uh, Three weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a twenty one full twenty one days long. I mean, it still is astonishing to me. Uh, yeah. The the length of that film. It was a very experimental move. You know, again, you know, thematically tying it into this film, you know, they were trying something. They were. Uh, they and were, I think in that in that yeah. case, as in this, they they failed very badly. Well, I wonder <laughs> if. I mean, maybe they could have cut out like maybe five or six hours out of that three weeks just to tighten it a bit. Yeah, I think that that might have made the difference. You, you uh, feel like there was a bit of fat there that they. Yeah, could in have, the in yeah. the end, it was definitely felt too bloated to me. Uh, mm. You know, I think that the full the full three weeks was just not really uh, <laughs> warranted. I think so. So many underwater scenes. <laughs> What do they say about you need uh, to do something for three weeks and it becomes a habit? So <laughs> well, thank, Thankfully, Thunderball didn't become a habit for me. <laughs> and for Eon Productions. Yes. So, yeah, I, look, I think that uh, 
again, I sort of have snookered myself because I, I think possibly You Only Live Twice is maybe a, a better film than this, but then I have put Thunderball ahead of that, and I think it might – look, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to happily put it in at 13th. I think I still like – I like Electric King. I like The Boat Chase. I think it, it, it is probably, oh gosh, it's hard, isn't it? Because some of these lower ones, you're like, well, it maybe wasn't as confusing. Is it better than For Your Eyes Only? <laughs> now I'm thinking maybe I have to drop it down a bit further and put it. See, I put it under For Your Eyes Only and then I still have it in front of The Man with the Golden Gun and I would still watch The Man with the Golden Gun. But again, it's really difficult trying to work out. The Man with the Golden Gun is a, is like it's it's not even a full proper movie it's sort of yeah. it's, it's pieces of a movie sort of placed together christopher lee's shit. well it does it does no no absolutely it has an incredible <laughs> villain that is completely wasted in an extremely mediocre movie i uh, can i put this above thunderball and you only live twice that's that's where i'm sitting at would i watch this more than I'm just going to go with putting it in 13th place and I'm going to stop talking and let you decide because otherwise okay. I'm going to be here all okay. night. Well, now, now I've got some thinking to do because I put it... So so th- this is definitely towards the bottom of my list. I kind of did the opposite of what I normally do, which is I, I normally start from the top and work my way down. So is it is it a better movie than Goldfinger? Absolutely not. Yes. What a ridiculous thing. you know. And so <laughs> then you go, you go down the list. I kind of did the opposite with this one because I was like, it's a bad movie. I don't like it. I, I like a lot of what it's trying to do, but what actually ended up on the screen is kind of a dreary, bland mess. And so I was like, what if, what if we just work up from the bottom? So my bottom film, obviously, is Thunderball, my oh most my hated film. Could uh, this finally be the one to crack the Thunderball? Uh, no, absolutely not. So I, was, I definitely oh. like this movie uh, far more than Thunderball. Um, <laughs> Next one's next one's a view to a kill, a mess of a movie, uh, aggressively bad in many respects. So this it's definitely better than this. Man with a golden gun, yeah, it's better than that or that. Then you hit Never Say Never Again and Octopussy in the 16th and 15th spots on my list, and that's where I hit my problem because I was like, I think it's better than both of those. And my tentative placement was in my number 15 spot, just below You Only Live Twice. So I've got You Only Live Twice, The World Is Not Enough, Octopussy, Never Say Never Again, and then the and then the rest. I think I'm okay with that, but is this a better film than Octopussy? Do I, I mean, like yes. Things? I mean, it is, isn't it? It does have the bait-and-switch villain thing, but at least it doesn't have the confused three-pronged villain attack. Yeah. Bond is not in a clown makeup. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Jesus Christ. As, yeah, actually, no, you've convinced me. Yeah, okay. As, 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 much as, as much as Tom Selinski convinced us that the uh, clown makeup was indeed justified sure yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely i I still it's it's a low point for the series and (laughs) and obviously like then you hit above it is you only live twice which as i always say has a spaceship that eats other spaceships which (laughs) is a very very big selling point for me so i think that's where it has to go in number 15 okay 15th for you 13th for me we're very similar we're yeah we're in the same ballpark and i think that kind of fits where we are with it because you like this movie slightly more than I did. I do. And I think that where you sort of see them trying for things and failing and judge them on the failure, I judge them on the effort um, because I'm an, <laughs> I'm a nicer person than you, Stu. I think we all know that. Sure, um, <laughs> absolutely. I'll happily admit that. No, don't even be silly. I'm a trash bag. <laughs> There's a YouTuber I like watching who does merch and one of her um, T-shirts just says garbage person. That's (laughs) how she refers to herself and her viewers. And I'm like, I want a garbage person T-shirt. 
All right, so we have progressed further on. We are now 19 films down, and next up we have Bond 20, which was a big deal. The 20th film in the franchise, and it's Pierce Brosnan's last. Will it be his best? Spoiler, (laughs) Rob's not. Spoiler, Uh, no. (laughs) So we will be back next week with Die Another Day. I'm very excited to talk about uh, Madonna's involvement and her theme song, which I think is vastly underrated, and I will defend that, so that's a spoiler. We could definitely have a talk about that. But until then, I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred.